0: Hello, and welcome to episode four of Fitter and Faster. My name is Emma-Kate Lidberry, host and managing editor here at Triathlete Magazine. In today's show, we chat with Matt Dixon, head coach and founder of Purple Patch Fitness, arguably one of the most successful and largest triathlon teams in the world. Matt has coached scores of pro triathletes and age groupers alike. The likes of Meredith Kessler, Tim Reed, Holly Lawrence and Jesse Thomas are just some of the athletes he's taken under his wing. On today's show, Matt shares with us how his vision for Purple Patch all started from the back of an airplane napkin. He also touches on what makes a world champion and the secrets to race day magic. He tells us a little bit about how Purple Patch has approached and navigated the COVID-19 pandemic and how to train and race successfully on less than 10 hours training a week. Okay, here is our conversation with Coach Matt Dixon. Matt Dixon, hello and welcome to Fitter and Faster. Thank you for joining us. How is life over there in San Francisco?
1: We are holding strong, Emma-Kate, holding strong. <laughs> Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. You, uh, you know a thing or two about triathlon training, so uh, we're looking forward to getting stuck into uh, your, your meat and potatoes, as, as you say. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we, I, I thought it would be useful for, uh, or helpful, um, to set the scene a little bit and, uh, for you to tell us about Purple Patch. Uh, obviously you're, you've kind of got, you've built a coaching empire over there in, uh, San Francisco, which has a global reach. And, uh, I think you said to me yesterday you've, you're coaching athletes in 75 different countries. Um, but it all started from a vision you had that you sketched out on a, an airplane napkin many, many years ago. And, uh, and now look at you in 2020. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about the journey.
1: Yeah. So, so for context, my my background, I came across here like you. Mm-hmm. E- I can't call you Eccles anymore, can I? I'm you call can, you but Cape, we might we, uh, might
0: we might have to explain it. But we can do that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, come. That, that, uh, many moons ago, I, I I coached Emma Kate, and uh, my nickname was Eccles, which is a particular favourite current bun. From, uh, from England. But uh, my background, I come from England, obviously, as well. I came across as one of the sort of early wave of, of swimmers, uh, international athletes. And so I'm in college over here. And swimming was a, obviously a very challenging sport. I came to a program that was very high volume. Every day was kind of threshold. And, and I had some talent, but a great work ethic. And I, I sort of probably underperformed relative to my potential likely because of overtraining, but the only reason I say that is because I I took that mad work ethic into triathlon. And I think I'm a wonderful example of how to do a triathlon career really poorly. uh, All all of the things that we take for granted now, recovery, nutrition, strength, as as an integrated part of an overall program, that was just lip service at the time that I was racing. And it was really a sport that was dominated by the ethos of accumulation of work, accumulation of work, And so, in my professional triathlon career, I trained myself into a hole, and it was sort of over before it really even began. And at the time, I already had a background in swimming coaching. My educational background was clinical physiology. And so, yes, I should have known better, but I'm a slow (laughs) learner. And, um, And I started to coach triathletes. And I looked at the sport at the time, very early 2000s, and what I felt I saw was a massive symptom of underperformance, both with the amateur level and, uh, and to be honest at the pro level. And, uh, I just thought there's gotta be a better way. And I was flying back from Oceanside. I'd started to coach, uh, a amateur that had just turned pro a, a female athlete called Tyler Stewart.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: um, and coming back from that race, I was flying home with my wife, Kelly, on a United Airlines flight. And she said, what, what, what do we want to do with this business here? We we, we we, want to create a professional coaching business, but what's our ethos? And I wrote on the back of a napkin that I want to change the way that endurance sports are coached. And right. that sounds tremendously egotistical, <laughs> but, but the context is important, is that I felt like It was all this machismo, more, 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 and the yield wasn't there. And so it was at that point that I I made a commitment that I was going to embrace recovery as much as I was going to embrace the very critical hard work. I was going to integrate aspects of nutrition and everything that falls under it into and give it equal footing as endurance and then strength and conditioning as well. And, uh, and our vision now, our mission has evolved where it's to empower and educate every human being to reach athletic potential. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was one of the very first people, believe it or not, it's so trendy now, but to talk about recovery. And that's how I got the label, the recovery coach.
0: You did, yeah. And it's interesting. And I remember when I first started working with you, which was probably 2011, I would guess, 10, yeah, yeah. 10 11. Mm-hmm, 10. And that was, you were, you were the recovery coach. And so it was like it was almost a little bit of disappointment if you uh, got a Matt Dixon program and it would be like, oh wheres where's my recovery where's all my recovery?" And it was like, well, "Oh no, that, you have that, to have you have to do the work to get the recovery."
1: Well, that, but, I think you, I think you nail it right there because it, you know I got that label, and it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't given to me by people that that viewed me very positively they, uh, <laughs> at the time when I started talking about recovery. People are saying, oh, it's a quack. It's a shortcut to success. You know, he's trying to basically do the seven minute abs. And it's like, no, it's it's absolutely not that. It's unmistakable that performance takes a massive amount of consistently hard work. Right. But in order for that to flourish, you must embrace recovery. And that, with one of my many sayings that I have, I have a whole host of very silly sayings, but one of them is it takes courage to recover. Because we're all very good at working hard. We're not very good at taking a step back and letting it marinate. and right. um, and so as 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 you found, I've never been told that our training is too easy. I've never been told that we don't do enough. we 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 work very, very hard, but we embrace recovery as a critical part of it, accelerating the athlete, basically.
0: Yeah, and that's one of those four pillars, what you call your four pillars of performance, the training strength and conditioning, nutrition slash fueling and recovery. And those, those four things brought together are what yields the results, not just the training, not obviously not just the
1: recovery, but those, those four things in concert together. Exactly. It's about creating the, the recipe. And, right. and when you get the recipe right, people accelerate. And it doesn't matter whether it's a world-class athlete or someone that's just getting into the sport or doing it as a fitness enthusiast, it, it, the the four components are all critical and I think people typically understand that But it's how you marry them together, right? It's it's creating the recipe and always keeping a lens on uh, On each of them while in concert not just thinking oh I eat well So therefore I'm gonna be great. It's like no you gotta and uh, and so yeah, that that's the spirit so the the reason we have the pillars of performance is really an educational tool. It's to set the mindset of the athlete. It's to frame conversations. It's not some quick fact marketing thing. It's, this is a fundamental belief that anyone coached by us has to, has to fall in love with, has to make that a part of their life, basically, right. because that's the way we do things. And that could be you as a world-class athlete. That could be our friend, Angus, that never will be.
0: Yeah. And so, as you mentioned, you've coached hundreds of age group athletes, and you still do, and many, many scores of professional triathletes who have, some of them have earned world championship titles. Many, many of them have obviously earned Ironman 70.3 championships. Um, What Across the board, what are the biggest mistakes that you see athletes making as a coach?
1: I think that (laughs) there are many. Uh, I I used to say that, I, I, I used to say there are two. I, th- I think that if I had to bring the, you know, the, the top two mistakes, I think that there are three now, actually, uh, unfortunately. Uh, maybe we're all collectively getting less smart. I'm not sure. But, but the, very, <laughs> the, the, three, the three most common mistakes I see is number one, athletes going too hard in the easy days and it, it, ramping programs too quickly and then not having the courage to really go easy on the days that are designated to be, to, to be easy. That's, that's number one. The second uh, big mistake that we see that, that I think is it, it, it extends more beyond nutrition, this is about stress management as much as anything else, but, but I really like athletes post-workout fueling. So, whether they're going for a very easy run or a very hard set of bike intervals, whatever it might be, consuming calories after the workout is is incredibly important. And, and yes, it's about restocking energy and beginning protein synthesis to restore muscle, etc. But it's as much about daily energy management and mm-hmm. stress reduction. So, you know, when you train, cortisol is up through the roof appropriately. Protein is a natural suppressor of cortisol. We don't want to co- carry cortisol into our workday. We want to be calm and be able to make smart strategic decisions. And so, So I think that that's a really good habit for stress management, for recovery, for refueling, for consistency, and for avoiding what I call athletic starvation athletes, falling into a place where they have very hard time controlling what they're eating, what their food choices is, how much they're eating, et cetera. And so that, that becomes a really important part. And then the third I would mention is an over obsession. I would call it paralysis of analysis. Mm-hmm. An over obsessing session of what the numbers say on devices while diluting being in touch with how they feel and yep. data is wonderful numbers are wonderful all of the 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 advent of so much of the technology that we have can be a very useful tool, but I see way too many athletes being controlled by the tools and ignoring the sensations and uh, you know I just had. One of my athletes the other day say, oh, it's all gone to pot. It's terrible and, you know, almost in tears because she typically would hold 200 watts in a very hard interval and she couldn't get above 75 watts. Something's wrong with me. So, no, maybe something's wrong with your trainer. And, uh, and it's just that oh. <laughs> complete control, yeah? <laughs> so, so those are the big three, I would say.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's quite a drop 75, 200 to 75. I'd be, yeah, I'd be looking for it's something. A, physiologic,
1: a physiological <laughs> impossibility basically.
0: <laughs> On the flip side of that then. So that's the biggest mistakes, but, um, among your, among your squad, among your clientele, you have some seriously high achieving people in, not just in athletics, but in life, you know, um, mm-hmm. some Silicon Valley movers and shakers. What do you see? What do you see those, you know, whether it, whether it was Jesse Thomas when he was winning Wildflower year after year, or Meredith Kessler or Tim Reed or whomever, and then some of these CEOs and people who are essentially very, very high achieving in life. What do you see? What's the common thread? What do you see that they all have?
1: What a wonderful question. I, it's, I know, uh, Just made for you, Matt. It, it is. No, it, it is a wonderful question. Yeah, I, think, I think a fair few people know, but let me preface it with this. I've been incredibly lucky. I've, I've got to work with some amazing athletes that are also incredible human beings, Emma Kate Libri, um, <laughs> but Tim Bree, Jesse Thomas, Meredith Kessler, Lindsay Corbin, you know, this the goes on and every one of those world-class athletes will teach a coach. If the coach is listening as much as the coach will lead them. And on the flip side, on the other side of my life, I've, I get to work with captains of industry, people that would know household names uh, so far as CEOs and executives of, of large leading companies. The interesting thing is if you take the traits, that the personality traits, the way that they approach things, whether it's a leading CEO, whether it's a world-class athlete, the differentiating traits are almost exactly the same. And, and many of the traits are, are exactly what is needed as we collectively, as a society, navigate what we're navigating right now.
0: Right. And yep. so
1: they have, um, I, I'll give you five. I've, I've got 10 to 12 that I, I always keep in the backpack, but I'll give you three, four, or five of them. The first is a, an absolute, unsatiable desire to learn. And so the very best athletes and the very best, highest, the, the highest achieving CEOs always want to learn. Yeah. And, um, and so they're very coachable. Interestingly, people think that great athletes have got it all worked out, but great athletes surround themselves with people that will help them achieve and tend to be very coachable. And, uh, and I think that's a r- really key thing. A growth mindset is something that you might call it. Yeah. The second thing that I think is probably in priority of order is they are all highly adaptable. So we have a concept at Purple Patch we call Change Able, having the ability to navigate change and have a certain flexibility. Right. Uh, they, they are all equipped to see failure as a growth opportunity rather than a than a identification that they are failures. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they all have a, a great relationship with failure, which I think is important because Every single one of the people that we mentioned there have failed a lot. And uh, you can go back to your career of how successful you were, but how many times you had to fail to achieve the successes.
0: Yeah. And, and still and still failing now, many things, but learning, yeah.
1: <laughs> me, me too. But, but I bet that you can draw on your experiences as an athlete now as you go into life and realize how important those experiences were. Um, and um, the fourth, I would say, is a, a massive passion for the journey. Mm-hmm. So while, while they all love outcomes and success, that's actually not their defining part. What they really love is the process mm-hmm. and the, the art, the craft and, uh, and doing that side of, uh, of stuff. And then the final one that I would add, because it's particularly, uh, particularly prevalent now is, is resilience and having great resiliency. And I would, I would almost, um, extend that to we have a theme out of this whole, uh, COVID-19 around emerging stronger. So navigating through, and we might talk about this later, but, but the mission being for anyone to come out of it stronger than when they were in the first place. And that's almost that's anti-fragility. So that's more than resilience. That's taking adversity and looking for opportunity and levers to pull to actually use it as a, uh, as a chance to actually progress, not just try and absorb like like a resilient person would. So, um, so yeah, those are the those are the key traits I would say.
0: Yeah, and as you were listing those, I was thinking like those are all things that anybody who's going to bounce, any professional athlete, any captain of industry, anybody who's going to bounce well out of the last few months and probably for the foreseeable future is going to be somebody who has to have those traits. Uh, yeah. And 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 how have you how have you uh, kind of as a coach, how have you coped with that, with your athletes? Uh, and you know, any, whether it's age groupers, pro athletes, um, what's that coping process look like over the last few months and going forward, you know, we still don't really know when racing is going to return.
1: No. And, uh, and, and I'll talk about that. It's, so it's been a process. And, uh, if we go back to March, I think that the, uh, when, when it really, at least in the US, obviously in, in January and February, uh, Italy and Spain and obviously China were, uh, were navigating what the US started to really manage in March. So, so I'll stay US centric when I talk about this. The um, In March, there was a, a, a period of time, a couple of weeks where it was really chaotic. And there was a lot of fear, a lot of concern, a lot of worry, a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that we really tried to help people to do was to stabilize and to actually get into routine and, um, and, and create structure in the things that they could control. Right. So suddenly people's lives were turned upside down. They had fear. And interestingly, training was one thing that, that really could create a framework while training was different. People had to stay healthy. And we were very fortunate because our Ethos has always been about much more than racing. Now mm-hmm. we only coach an amateur to say, look, we want you to achieve your goals, but but we don't want to do it at the expense of life. We want to be healthy, we want you to perform in the workplace. So we've always been about the whole human. So it felt like bizarrely, this is our time, this is our calling, we've got a real role. And um so we doubled down on that. And uh, and after we we got our athletes really stabilised we had to have, a, I think, a period of almost grieving and, yeah. um, and a lot of empathy for each other. And, and the best way for athletes to grieve, the loss of racing, the cloudiness, the fear, the concern, the collision of, of worlds with working from home. Once, um, once we've gone through that, we need to make sure that that doesn't, and there's a whole bunch of empathy. The best way to navigate that is to really come together and, uh, and really try and be a, a community, no matter where you're at in the world, support each other. But I wanted to be sure that we didn't let empathy fall into self-pity. Hmm.
0: Yep. And so
1: very, very quickly, we went, we, we completely restructured the company. And so we designed a whole, we got all of our athletes under a very similar program that was called, we called our COVID program we, we didn't just try and go into maintenance mode and we didn't try and train for racing. We we did training that was appropriate for the situation that we're in, where we said, racing's miles off, but how do we actually use this time as an opportunity to evolve as an athlete? Mm-hmm. And so we did a lot of technical work, a lot of soul-filling work, as I call it. So a very easy training to help emotionally navigate the time and then we did a bunch of really really short high intensity training because we wanted to improve the size of the engine of the athlete and the stuff that was far away from race specific Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and we we did a good couple of months of that and we got everybody together um sharing the experience so we launched live coaching we did live video bike classes which we still do we did um live Zwift sessions, which of course many people have done. We uh, we did live coaching, uh, strength coaching, self-care, swim bands. So we had a whole st- host of live coaching. And then we went into education and support. We had multiple sessions a week th- th- with ourselves and our experts. I'm I've, I've lucky to have lots of now friends and associates that are experts in field, and we brought them all in together. And so the spirit was to go through this journey and not focus on Oh, I haven't got racing, but instead let's leverage it so that when you're ready to start to train, you're a better athlete mm-hmm. as a foundational athletically and wise, and also building community and coming together. And, and what has happened is that our online sort of private community has completely exploded. And, and because it's global, it becomes really interesting because it's very supportive with different perspectives. So we're, we're very, right. very lucky actually.
0: Yeah, that sounds, that sounds terrific because I know a lot of athletes in Boulder, you know, with, with pools being closed, gyms being closed, a lot of people have almost been in panic mode you know, and, and, and seeking out that kind of community that sounds like you've, you've created. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the other side of that when, when, uh, when the Purple Patch athletes are back out on the race course. So uh, that sounds very cool. Which we,
1: yeah, and we, we hope it's obviously sooner rather than later but it might not be. Right. And and I think now coaches and athletes, everybody has got COVID fatigue. Everyone's done with this yeah. <laughs> yes. But guess what? We might not be done with it. Yeah. And we likely are not. And in fact, there's a reasonable chance that we're not even halfway. And that's really bad and sad and frustrating and challenging. But, I think that athletes and, and coaches the first time when this started, it was empathy and compassion and a bit of grieving. I think now it falls into the sign of, okay, now deal with it. Pull your socks up. Yep. There's the other side. There's a bloody mindedness is a, is a key trait for your own personal performance. And we don't lose empathy, but we have to get on with it. Yep. And, and so be, be creative, be, be inventive. What can you do? And, and I, I, I hate people just to get so frustrated that they just start to quit and give up on themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I really encourage people to get back to, why are you really doing, doing this, this sport? Yeah, yeah, why are you doing it? And it's not just so that you can hopefully qualify to Kona. That's great. It is everything that it brings. It makes you a better person. It's giving you a platform of health it enables you to show up to your family and friends, healthier with more vibrancy. It helps you perform in the workplace. Double down on that and find something that you can share and then create your own goals or join in with goals. And there's all sorts of virtual racing and things like that going in. Double down on that stuff because buckle up, it's gonna be a journey, but what's the alternative? You turn your back on it and you fall into disrepair. You won't be happier.
0: That's very true. Yeah, that is very, very true. so going, backing up a little bit and going back to, you know, when you, you were talking earlier about you, you in the early days of Purple Patch, you, you were labeled this, dubbed the recovery coach. And I would argue now that maybe you're more the uh, the time crunch, the time management man, you know, and the, the, your book, your second book, The Fast Track Triathlete, um, mm-hmm. you really go into a lot of detail and depth about how to achieve success, whether it's training, racing, in life, in with a very limited time budget, which let's face it, every, I mean, almost every triathlete has, they're, they're dealing, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to balance training for three sports and, and obviously age group athletes have a full-time job and work, family commitments, those sorts of things. Um, tell us a little bit about this whole time crunch mentality, methodology and, and where it, where it came from and and how you've achieved so much success with it, because you know, you've got the likes of Sami Inkkanen, who uh, was it? He used to train ten hours or less, and, and yeah. my goodness, that, that guy achieved some things. So yeah, that's a long question, did, yeah. but what I'm what I'm saying is, yeah, just give us give us a
1: few nuggets about the time-crunched uh, methodology. Sure, you, you mentioned Sami, and um, I should say it's, it's time-starved rather than time-crunch, which is actually trademarked. So I, uh, oh okay, time-starved. Yeah, so time-starved <laughs> is, well, is our Well, are careful plus. of that? That's, <laughs> and And i didn't realize that actually i I happened to fall on time starved and uh that's that's just my my sort of way of speaking but yeah time starved athlete is what we always talk okay. about but uh but you mentioned Sami and Sami Inkenham was the founder of a real estate search engine called Trulia, and I met him right when he joined or when it started Trulia, he was the founder and uh, and over the five years that Trulia went on its journey to become public. I was coaching Sami as a triathlete where he won every age group uh, race under the sun. He was one Hawaii as an amateur, was under nine hours there on a very windy day. I mean, and we all did it on a time budget of under 10 hours a week of training. Now, I think that's important story because the message out of that is not that to do well in Hawaii or to do well in an Ironman, you only need to train 10 hours. Sami is a physiological beast. That's why I called him Sami the bull. And, um, but the key thing is if I had delivered Sami in his life situation, 16 hours, he wouldn't have been successful because the bucket of life stress that he was managing didn't give him enough capacity to effectively do 16 hours. So the time-starved approach is all about finding your best performance within the context of your life, and the common methodology of training for an Ironman 70.3 or an Ironman is for athletes and coaches to say, "This is how many hours I have to be to have to do to be successful," and then trying to cram those hours into an already busy life. And what ends up happening is the bucket of stress tips over and something has to give. So people start to give on sleep, on downtime for themselves. And they're just always, they've almost given themselves a second job. And the journey becomes almost torturous. And by the time the race comes, they're just desperate for it to be over. And that's where so much tension in life happens. They don't have a good work-life fit. Mm -hmm. And so instead, Looking at this, I was like, this is not sustainable, achievable, and it's not providing the avenue for people to thrive. And so how about if we start it from the other side of the equation? Let's do, and, and, and this is every week, we have something called the Sunday special, which is just a time for people to come up, pause, reflect on last week, and look forward. The stress of life ebbs and flows. So let's not get rigid around training hours in a week. Sometimes you're gonna have more capacity, sometimes you're gonna have less. What you need to have is control and levers to be actually fill that time so that everything is integrated. Mm -hmm. So you look at the landscape of life and you say, these are my non-negotiables, I've got to work, I need time for my family, I've got to sleep, I need a little downtime for myself, et cetera. Now, how much time do I have for training? And that might be 10 hours, it might be 12, it might be 20, Who, who knows, yeah? But then the question is an optimization challenge. With that realistic time that I have to train, how do I optimize? Mm -hmm. And and that's step one. So that's, in a nutshell, that's how we go about it. For every athlete, uh, we try and teach them and educate them to become empowered to to take control of that situation for themselves and to start from that side of the equation. Let's build the non-negotiables in life. Then let's integrate training into it if you have more time we can add training if you have less time let's retain the key sessions right so this and that's the second part of it is uh and, and shall i carry on while i'm yes, on yes because
0: yes i know because i was going to ask you about those key sessions that should be a part of that of that training week so
1: yes yeah. keep Good. flowing okay all right i'll keep rambling uh you'll remember that i can talk um <laughs> the so if you have that, that many hours, the, the second fundamental mistake I believe that athletes make is to look, to view their training as just chicken casserole. You know, it's just every session has the same weight of importance. And ultimately, training is important. And there is a certain amount of, of stress that you need to apply to yield adaptations and more is better if your body can absorb it in a positive way. But in any given week of training or block of training, there are key sessions which are really designed to move the performance needle. And those are either the ones that are terrifyingly hard, or maybe the ones that are over distance, you know, endurance resilience, but they have a very central purpose to what you're building the training program around. And then the, there are the other sessions that are not unimportant, but are more supportive in nature, ones that are there for general endurance, ones that are there there to prepare for an upcoming key session, one that might be there to help recover from a key session to bridge consistency. So suddenly you've got a hierarchy, you've got two, three, four key sessions in a week, and then you've got all these supporting sessions. So what that enables us to do is to say, in any given week, I'm going to make sure that I retain the integrity of the most important key sessions. Yep. And then the supporting sessions are the ones that I can do them all. And that's great if my body, but if I'm carrying too much fatigue or life is getting in the way, those are the ones that we're either going to reduce a little bit or even guilt-free eliminate. Yep. And that becomes the management tool. And and what that enables is the number one word, the number one word, in performance and endurance sports, which is consistency.
0: Yep, it's that magical absolutely
1: key, magical magical. C
0: word. Yes,
1: exactly. And and if you can do it over, because there's no shortcut. So yeah, on any given week, you might you might have you know someone that is relatively time starved, they might have. Kids going off or something at work or travel, obviously, when we used to travel for work. Right. And they might only get six, seven, eight hours in that week, but they've still got the performance needle moving sessions in and yeah. maybe one or two of the supporting. But at another time, they might have an extra Friday off work or the kids are away, whatever it might be. And they might be able to do 12, 13, 14 hours. And and none of those, neither of those weeks are failures. What they are is appropriate relative to what's happening in your life. And so it becomes a stress management tool. And when you layer that over many, many weeks and many, many seasons, you get to stay emotionally fresher, physically fresher. You're always absorbing and therefore you're prepared. So even at our pros, when we look and they say, how many hours a week does... You know, Sam Appleton train. So I don't know, I, I never count, actually, because I, I begin the key sessions and I think about his and fatigue and I add the others around mm-hmm. and that's how it works. So we're not really measuring, at, at least obsessively, obsessively measuring accumulation as the barometer of success. It's effective work done effectively, consistently
0: yeah and do you still see I, I think this is something that I see now having kind of stepped out of professional racing and you know still being involved in the sport, but at a different from a different perspective, one of the things I see quite commonly is it takes a certain confidence to know when to step back and when to and when to hold back and when to drop some sessions and when to when when you and when it's fine to keep going i mean is that something you you see with you know pros age groupers alike or
1: and how do you, and how do you help coach that and manage that? So it, 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 yes, is the, the short answer. There's it, it, and let, let's be frank. It's incredibly hard. Yeah. You have some athletes that are just unbelievably good at it and it's their secret weapon. Jesse Thomas would be a great example. Incredibly yeah. smart, high, high athletic IQ athlete and, um, annoyingly so, but, uh, <laughs> You know, and but then someone else, you know, a different athlete that strayed towards the other side. Tim Reed, who obviously won the World Championship in two thousand sixteen, and he, Tim, I used to call him Tim the Tinkerer because he's he's got a little bit of paralysis of analysis, and, and I'm now great friends with Tim, massive respect for him. But he he learnt the art of simplifying. And consistency. and uh, and the way that we did it with Tim is we actually anchored it around mission and purpose. So Tim, and Tim would tell you the same story if he was if he was on the show. Tim would have a tendency to bring data and metrics and equipment changes into his life to the point that it made him go crazy, and it amplified fear going into a race. And so at the start of two thousand and sixteen, We, um, it was, we, we have another mantra, nail the basics. And, and it started with Tim Reed said this year, Tim, you're allowed to sort out your bike fit at the start of the year, choose your equipment at the start of the year, but you're only allowed to focus on seven things. And that was, you know, fueling after a workout, going easy on the easy days, uh, magnifying the or or prioritizing sleep. He had two kids at the time. So really, really basic stuff. And we weren't going to talk about anything else apart from these seven things that we want to Mm master. And what ended up happening is it made the journey more simple. And he became a master of those things that probably took him 97% of the way to his performance potential. And then the last 3%, the critical 3% of why he won the world championship was it freed up mental capacity for him to think about the how. And... Could go into the race uh, down in Australia in Mululaba. Mm-hmm. He could go in with capacity of. I know I've done everything of all the fundamentals. I know I'm healthy. I know I'm good. Now, how do I do this race? Yep. And he and he got to enjoy it. And it's quite. I remember after it won, he was on a podcast, and they said, "What was the race strategy?" Mm-hmm. And uh, and Tim said, "Well, my coach told me to go and have fun." And <laughs> <laughs> that's true, but the context behind that is. He was so prepared and I had such trust, such a better athlete than I ever was. I mean, obviously physically, but also mentally, a great reader of a race, Yes. a great and and just this inner capacity to make decisions. And I wanted to free that up and I didn't want to get in the way of that. And so go and have fun. Let the home crowd, because he's Australian, lift you and go and express yourself. And that was the mantra behind that fun. And so how, how do you teach it? Repeated conversations and edu- and education but the most important thing is ensuring that the athlete understands why they're doing what they're doing yep that's the key if you just say because I said so you're failing you have to understand and you have to get the athlete to understand this is the role of it mm-hmm. and and it's not easy still not easy as uh, as you probably look back in your career now yeah I think yeah wow, I was- I- Definitely. I could have been so much smarter,
0: right? Yeah. For sure. And one of the things that was just really resonating me with, with resonating with me then, as you were telling that story, was one of the things that I think you see when somebody has a magic day, like Tim Reed did that day in Bar, uh, and I think you see it uh, some of Rini's uh, champion, Kona Championship winning days. Is you see, and I know Rachel, Rachel Joyce, the same. You see mm-hmm. and you feel. That emotional freshness, that three percent that he needed in order to be able to go out and race, uh, you see that, you feel it, and it's that that enables all the training that's come before it to come out and play and come out and show itself. Um, and when you when you don't have that emotional freshness, or yeah, you know, and I think some of that comes from having planned your weeks, you know, and, and, and making sure you've got the downtime. And that's when I when I look back on my career, I, I can definitely see where I went wrong there. But when you speak to Rinnie or Siri about some of her best seasons and her best approaches to Kona, that was the, that was the nugget, you know? And, and so you talking about Tim there, it's like the same formula applies. You know, you have that 3%, you have that or whatever the, the you know, the percentage yeah, might little, be, Yeah, you have that little window of freshness that allows you to let all that work come out and show it, show itself on the most important day.
1: And you almost... You, you have the freshness to give yourself to the occasion that yes. you're actually just, and it comes out of consistency. So, so many athletes have had these wonderful seasons and results coming off of early season injuries. Yes. And why is that? And it, it, a part of it is lower expectations. And so there's a freedom that comes with it sometimes if they're confident. But the other part of it is they haven't trained themselves into the ground. Yep and and and, in fact, Rachel's a great example of that. that Rachel Joyce is one of the most remarkable athletes for overcoming adversity uh, in, tremendous adversity and creating lemonade out of lemons, like just just unbelievable what she has done in a career when everything has been stacked up against her. at the same stage, she's also you know the one of my biggest coaching mistakes. That, that i have made with an athlete was with rachel joyce where where we got greedy going into kona i really felt like it was the year that she really could win the race so it, it felt like she should, and two weeks out of the race she got um uh, throat infection that that's a coaching issue that wasn't you know it was, that it, it was that we had got greedy on the training program she didn't show up fresh and um you know, that, that was the occasion. You sort of have to carry that as a coach that that was sort of on my shoulders. Now, if I didn't learn from that, and then, um, then it really would be a failure. It was a failure on the day, but, uh, but obviously it's a, it's a learning opportunity. And hopefully, hopefully I'm a faster learning on that side of stuff.
0: Yeah. And I think it's great. It's great that, you know, coaches have as much to learn as athletes along, along those journeys. Um, and, you know, and, Learning training stress alongside, I know this is one of your, one of the things that you taught me is training stress alongside global stress. You know, where does training exists in, training doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not in its own little planet. Training is part of the whole world that we live in. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but looking forward then, Matt, I mean, we are almost, we're almost out of time here, but looking forward, what do you consider to be some of the biggest, or what do you think perhaps will be the, some of the biggest changes that we see in our approach to Tre- endurance training uh triathlon training over the next five five or more years that um that might change the way we do things
1: i think it will i think that the i thought you were going to say the next five months and i said oh five months Well, question to answer <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know we're going into a the fog has not lifted that's for sure but um over the next five years uh i i think that um I think there's going to be a fundamental shift amongst amateur athletes around identification. And what I mean by that is I anticipate that um, if we go back five years, many, many triathletes identified themselves as a triathlete. That's Mm -hmm. what they am. And and it it was a serious, I think there's a broadening of perspective where people start to view themselves as athletes that do multiple things or a multi multi multi-sport athlete. I'm going to go and do a trail race, a gravel race. And I think that's really healthy. I think it's really healthy emotionally, physically to change things up. And so I think that coaches and athletes still need to lean into, or will need to lean into the principles of structure and progression of multi-year journeys, but having a little bit more flexibility to go and try different things and be Mm -hmm not just a, I'm an Ironman athlete.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The second thing that I think that will happen, and I, I'm not a genius for saying this, but I think that there's gonna be ever increasing connectivity via technology with training. And so what we see right now with um, Peloton in the general fitness world, uh, Zwift, road, etc. cetera, uh, I think that that world is only going to amplify Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think that there's going to be a virtual component of what we do across multiple disciplines. And I hope that it becomes a positive. What I mean by that is I hope that it becomes a positive of helping, uh, people connect and be structured and progressive. Now with that, I think that we're social animals and I hope that that experience virtually is amplified with real in person connectivity around groups mm-hmm. and and i hope that it blossoms like this where there's really people realize that while it's an individual sport you get your best individual performance when you're a part of something and you share the journey and you support each other i have a belief that people thrive when they when they have a mentor when they mentor someone and when they get support Absolutely. with their peers and so I hope that that goes in person and virtually. I think those are the the big two things but um, but we've just got to ride the roller coaster for the next six to nine months and um, and hopefully racing will come back and we can start to move back to some version of normal and uh, and start to grow
0: yeah well talking talking of riding the roller coaster, last question to wrap up but how, how are you going to help your athletes prepare for a February Kona? Age groupers, pros alike, I mean, that's, that's a, an interesting challenge, right?
1: Yeah, I, I hope that the world is in a place that there, there is a February Kona first. Mm. Uh, the, the first thing that we have parallel programming planned already. We have a set of programming that if the world starts to open up and we start to move in, Uh, And then um, we're going to um, obviously fall back into season and and some races in the autumn that we'll be able to go and hit Then have regular postseason, etc. We also have an alternate program that's built around if everything goes back into lockdown, this is what we're going to do with internal challenges. And so I want to have I want to be prepared for both situations. I don't want to be caught off of it within either one of those channels. We have a small small group of i think we've got 25 people currently qualified for the february race so those 25 uh, i've done a lot of thinking about that i'm going to treat it how i used to treat or i do treat athletes that have a very important early season ironman so i wouldn't do a classic kona build for it a great example was meredith kessler who i coached for 10 years and would consistently go to Hawaii, go to Arizona, be right up there at Arizona, and then go and race. I'm in New Zealand. New Zealand. yeah, yeah. And, She'd always uh, do, and she's
0: always raced so well there too.
1: Re, re, yeah, I think she she won it five times in a row. Do we win five in a row? Four in a row? But it's um, uh, so incredible performance, and then also always raced well in Arizona. So that's a very short window. At the same time, wanting to build a whole season, so we would go in. Uh, in winter months with much more speed and power focus, not a traditional Ironman build, doing just enough resilience work to carry the distance, but not go in with a classic Ironman build, not try and put a square pack in the round hole and have it doing really long miles outside when it was raining, cold, and dark. And we'd go in, it comes back to going in incredibly fresh and almost have the feeling of, am I ready to go and do an Ironman right now? And, um, and she always went and, and all of the athletes that did those early season races went well, but most of those for us, our 25 athletes that qualified, most of them will then recover and want to build a whole season ahead of them. Mm -hmm. And so while it's important, it's a different time of the year than October. And therefore it deserves a different approach because you've got a whole season ahead of you. And what I don't want is any athlete to have done Kona in February and by April saying, I'm just done with this. I'm tired. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, yeah,
0: which I think is one of the, the greatest risks if there, if there is a, a two a Kona year next year.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I've got a lot of my athletes. Sam just, uh, Sam Apperton just did it. Chelsea Sodaro, who was fourth at the Worlds last year from July 1st to 13th, is doing nothing. So cleaning out, doing nothing is not quite true. She'll do very easy, fun activity, but won't be on structured training. So we're implementing breaks right now Mm -hmm. to enable the body to absorb, to try and de-stress a little bit so that she's ready for the back half of the season if there is one. And, And so I think that's important. If you've got a February Kona you have to implement some time that you can really take a break for 10 days to two weeks because it's a long way to carry without, without a real break.
0: For sure. For sure. Okay, Matt, I think that's all we've got time for today, but thank you very much for joining us. That was all very useful, very informative. Good luck to you and all the Purple Patch team in the months ahead, and uh, we'll catch you soon.
1: Thank you very much, Emike. Thanks for having us, and uh, I just want to say best of luck to everyone on the journey and stay, stay strong. We'll get through this and emerge stronger cool. Thank you, Matt. Bye.
0: Okay. That was episode four of Fitter and Faster. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Triathlete Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks time. In the meantime, happy training.